of your body and blood in such a way that we may ever sense within us the fruit of your redemption for you live and reign forever and ever. Amen. Mary, seed of wisdom, pray for us. Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. So that prayer um, comes from one of the um, kind of older collects for the Feast of Corpus Christi. Um, if you may know your um, it's kind of church history. The prayers and the missiles have kind of evolved throughout the centuries. Yeah. Not sure where that one was from, but I liked it, so that's why I picked it. <laughs> um, so tonight, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about well, the topic Eucharistic devotion, in a sense as to why we hold it in such a high esteem. And again, I know many of us have been hearing talks on the Eucharist for the past few years now with the National Eucharistic Revival. Um, so, I'm not going to talk a lot about, again, the sacrament itself, because we've all heard a lot of stuff about it. There are a few things I wanted to say about it before going into the devotions, because I think it, they kind of give some good kind of um, foundation levels for us when it comes to how we understand the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, and what it means for us to be devoted to it. Many of us are probably familiar with the phrase, the Eucharist is the source and summit of our Christian life. That comes from the Catechism, paragraph 324. Um, if you've ever looked at the Catechism, it's basically just a lot of quotes from different sources. So the Catechism was compiled in the 90s, but again, it's drawing from the rich history of church teaching, church documents, church writings. That particular phrase comes from the Vatican II document, Lumen Gentium, and it's the, the, it means light to the nations. The church is the light of the world. And that comes from paragraph 11, and I quoted this to kind of put it in its fuller context. It says, taking part in the Eucharistic sacrifice, which is the font and apex of the whole Christian life, they, being the faithful, offer the divine victim to God and offer themselves along with it. So again, the, the, the sacrifice of the Holy Mass, the Eucharist, it's not something that we just receive. It is a reciprocation. It is a giving back to God. We receive... We receive the indwelling Savior, and we give it back to God. We give Jesus back to God in our actions and our prayers and the way we live our lives when we leave the church doors. So that's why, for example, if any of you are devoted to the Divine Mercy Chaplet, there's the line that says, I offer to thee the body and blood, soul and divinity of your dearly beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, it's giving back to God the greatest gift that He could have given us. And we don't do that because 
God needs that gift. It's us participating in the life of God. If we think about it, we, well, we, we believe, we hold as truth that God is one in three, Holy Trinity. And the Trinity is the relationship. It is the relation of God. And that is built in the three persons that are bond together by love. I'm not going to go into Trinity because it's I did a whole semester on it. But the Eucharist at its foundation is how we participate in the interior life of God. It brings us into that intimate relationship of the triune God. And you'll hear a word that I use a lot tonight is intimacy. Because the Eucharist is this bridge between the human and the divine. So there's that. So there's kind of the foundation. So the Eucharist then is a pretty big deal, as the church has said, and as we well know. But there's some other things too that I wanted to consider before going into the devotions, because there's I learned a few things, and you know, I've been very blessed for the past six years to be at St. Myron and being formed and learning the things I've learned. You know, I'll just a little sidebar on that. I mean St. Myrick has some of the best professors and theologians in the country, really throughout the world. And it's very moving to see these, um, they're actually very young, professors straight out of their studies in professional and their um, doctoral programs, and they come to the place to form priests. And, you know, they're making a little bit less than they would say working at places like Ave Maria or Notre Dame. But they come to Migrant to really fulfill what the Lord had been preparing them for, which is to use the gifts and the knowledge that they have received to help form the church's priests. So there's my little sidebar on my head. Anyway, these two parts I want us to consider, especially when it pertains to Eucharistic devotion, um, came from my class, surprisingly, on the Eucharist. The first one is this. The Eucharist is the continuation of Christ's presence here on earth. Or as Father Dennis told us, the Eucharist is the continuation of the Incarnation. Basically, it is Jesus keeping his promise that he has not abandoned his church. That Despite the thousands of years' histories that we've had, the tumult, the tumult, the chaos. I mean, a good example, I was just in Rome, and I was at St. Paul's outside the walls. And in that church, they have all the popes in church history. Probably about a third of them are actual saints. So, again, even despite that, Christ has not abandoned his church. Because the Eucharist is still present here on earth. So he keeps his promise. And the second one is this. The Eucharist makes the church. Not only is the Eucharist just the foundation of our faith, it is the foundation of the whole church. There is no church without the Eucharist. And its whole existence, Mother Church's existence, depends on the fact that Christ is present in every tabernacle across the world. So, 
just kind of some things to consider as to why we hold Eucharistic devotion and great adoration to our Lord's presence in the Blessed Sacrament. All right, to the topic at hand, Eucharistic devotion. I was trying to think about how to begin this, and what I've kind of found out most in my time in seminary is it's always good to define your terms. And I think that for Catholics, devotion is one of those terms that we just kind of use all the time. You know, I have my devotions. Well, this is my devotion. Well, what's your devotion? Oh, this is my devotion. And it's good to know what these terms mean. So, devotion has many definitions. I pulled the definition from a priest by the name of Father John Harden, who was a church historian. He was a Jesuit. And he said that devotion is the disposition of the will to do promptly what concerns the worship and service of God. Now, being a good Jesuit, he explains his term within the term, because the term, the definition he gives is a little dense. He says, devotion is ultimately rooted in a great love for God. That is what devotion is. Is setting ourselves in an activity, in a thing that is giving great love to God. And it reveals, too, that devotion isn't just a noun. It's a verb. It's an action. It's something we do. We give devotion. We are devoted. It's a complete turning towards God. In a moment in time, we put aside everything that bothers us, everything that is distracting us, we give our full attention to God. That is devotion. It is both a noun and a verb. Devotional practices, we know them very well. We have the rosary, we have the divine mercy chaplet, novenas, intercessors with the saints, particular devotions to the saints. My favorite ones coming up here, sadly's been suppressed on Sunday, Our Lady of Lords, St. Bernadette, that's one of my favorite devotions and saints. In all these practices that we have, I didn't mention yours, and again, they bring us closer to God. And that's always the one thing to think about when it comes to our devotional life. Is the thing that I'm doing drawing me closer to the Lord? So, and that's, that's also a great thing to remember too, because again, Catholics a lot of times are given a hard time for their devotional practices. But again, these devotions are not pointing to Mary or the saints. They don't stop there. They're pointing us to Jesus. They're pointing us back to the thing that deserves all our adoration and worship. So, another thing about devotions, especially devotional practices, is they vary among us. So, your devotion may not be the same as mine. You may have a saint that you love that, you know, I may respect, but don't have as much of a love for. You know, I love all the saints, but there are particular ones that are closest to people, and they're close to me. But Eucharistic devotion is different, because we should all be devoted to the Eucharist. This isn't something that's something we just pick and choose. The Eucharist, again, is the apex, the source of our life, so it must be something we're devoted to. And 
So, and why is this, that this is something we are called to devote ourselves to? Well, we're reminded what Jesus told Philip in the last uh, supper discourse in the Gospel of John. Jesus is preparing to say goodbye to his disciples. And all this time, he's spoken of the Father. The Father and I are one. The Father, the Father. And Philip, not fully understanding him, says, Lord, show us the Father. And he says, have you not been with me long enough, Philip? The Father and I are one. And he says that because Jesus comes to reveal God the Father. We look throughout all of salvation, or all of history in the Old Testament, they are just foreshadowing what's to come with Jesus, who reveals the Father and lets humanity know the love of God the Father. And this connects to the Eucharist because when we look at our Eucharistic Lord, we see Jesus. And when we see Jesus, we see the Father. Again, Christ keeps his promises. We can still see the Father. We do that in our devotion to the Holy Eucharist. So, when we talk about Eucharistic devotion, um, you know, what are the practices? What are types of Eucharistic devotion? I mean, certainly just going into church any time of the day and sitting before the Blessed Sacrament in the tabernacle is Eucharistic devotion. But of course, the one we're all preparing for here tonight is adoration. So I thought I'd share with you a little bit of my history with adoration. Because it's a bit contentious, because it's been a rough road. <laughs> um, like every good, I don't know, if I'm, am I a millennial or a Gen X? What would I be? 1996. Millennial? Okay. Like every good millennial, I have a terrible attention span. And <laughs> lectures have been hard for the past six years. So so when I first came to seminary, I had, had a little bit of experience with Eucharistic devotion, and particularly adoration. Um, but it wasn't for a long period of time. I would probably spend 10, 15 minutes... Um, I had been trying before going to seminary to spend a little bit more time, but I kind of struggled. And I remember going to seminary, and the first holy hour we ever had, the first hour of Eucharistic adoration, and I sat down, and I'm like, okay. Hmm. Seems like I'm a little unprepared, because I didn't know what to do. And it was something that I really had a hard time with. Because one of the things seminarians really struggle with is um, kind of an inferiority. They'll see their other seminarian brothers on their knees praying, have their eyes closed, looks like they're in ecstasy like St. Teresa of Avila. And I'm just sitting there like, hmm. I guess I'll look through the hymn book right now. It was a rough road, and I really, you know, looking back on the year that it was, again, God's providence never fails, and even though 2020, 2021 were very rough years for all of us, the moment in my life I will never forget was when I came home. So, in March of 2020, when we all kind of had to, 
you know, be put in our homes for a while. I stayed at the seminary, and we kind of became like our own little closed community. And I stayed there until Divine Mercy Sunday. Um, and I wanted to go home. And I go home, and I stay with my parents. But again, I'm in the same boat that they and all of you were in. I couldn't go to church. I couldn't go to be and spend time with the Blessed Sacrament. And enough time has gone by that I think I could share this story. I finally just asked my pastor, I said, I know the church is closed, but I really, really need to spend time with Jesus. And he graciously allowed me in. And I'll never forget that moment when I finally returned after three weeks, just a lot of emotion and joy of being back with him. And knowing that I didn't know how much I'd miss it until it was gone. And, you know, I think about that, and it still saddens me that some have still not come back. Because if they would have known what they had left and still missing out, they would have been back immediately. So after that, I'm not going to say adoration became easier. It's still a challenge. But I became more aware of the presence that was before me. The divine presence. And this connection with the divine. And especially as I progressed in seminary, I've said this now, I've lost more relatives in seminary than I did before seminary. Um, you know, just these past few months, my uncle died only eight months after, eight weeks after battling stomach cancer. And while I was over with my class trip, um, in London, one of my cousins, her, um, her husband, who was only 40 years old, died of a massive heart attack. And, you know, the struggle of just having so much death, but again, realizing for myself, when I would look upon the Blessed Sacrament, I was glimpsing into heaven. And I could have hope that maybe the ones that I loved were looking and that's, the, for me at least, what has been so wonderful about Eucharistic devotion and adoration. So I could go on, but I think I share those because time with the Lord in adoration is, it's not easy. And it's one of those things that can push us. Um, you know, if we think about it, we receive Jesus on Sundays in our hands or on our tongues in the Eucharist, but then we leave. Like, right? Well, I mean, we're told to get out because it says in the church, in the right, go in peace, or as Father Dennis says, get out. <laughs> it's a nice way of saying go, go out. Um, so, I mean, if we're not careful, it can just become something that we just do. But adoration is a time. To actually come back. We come back and we know we're not going to receive Jesus in the Eucharist. But we come to spend time with him. An intimate time. And actually it is a time when he is his most vulnerable. Especially in adoration. Because in that moment. He's exposed. For all. The reason we can leave Jesus in the tabernacle is because it's locked. But when he is in the monstrance, in adoration, he's vulnerable. It's incredible to think about that. 
that the God of heaven and earth, the creator of the universe, is vulnerable. But then again, this is the same one who was laid in a manger and was a helpless baby. So he knows what it's like to be vulnerable. So, this is a time, adoration in particular, is a time for us to be with Jesus. To slow down and to be with him. Kind of going on this though, the question is how long? So you may have heard me, I talked about the holy hour that I, we would do in seminary. And actually right now, um, you know, St. Minor, we have three, three hours a week that we have Eucharistic adoration on Sundays, Tuesdays and Thursdays where all are more or less expected to be there the whole time. We also have it Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays in the morning for those who are a little bit more of an early riser. I try to be, but sometimes it doesn't work. Um, so almost every day, the Lord is exposed in our chapel. And so that in particular has very much moved me to make those times important. But anyway. So kind of going off of devotions, and Eucharistic devotions, the common thing with adoration is what's called the holy hour. Um, again, why an hour? Scripture. We go back to Jesus in the garden. He tells his disciples, especially Peter and James and John, the ones he was closest to, who he asks to stay with him. He says, you couldn't stay awake with me for just one hour. The holy hour is a time to spend with Jesus when he's most vulnerable. He was most vulnerable that night in the garden. So it's our turn to spend time with him too. St. Teresa of Lisieux, St. Teresa of Lisieux, used to lament this. She would reflect upon that and she would actually be brought to tears that our Lord went through that. So she made it her life's goal to comfort him by spending time with him. It's a very interesting thing to think about that she was comforting Jesus and spending time with him when he had died in history thousands of years before she was born. But again, the Eucharistic Lord is our Lord. It's the same Lord that bled on the cross. He's the same. So for her, time didn't mean anything. The same Lord that she adored in the tabernacle was the same Lord that wept tears of blood in the garden. So we keep watch for him for an hour. It's giving an uninterrupted time to Jesus. And again, as you've heard, it's not the easiest thing. I struggle with it. Even to this day, I struggle to give him an hour. Now there are many seminaries who can give him an hour. Props to you. You know, they can slow themselves down. I'm finding it's harder for me. And I'm also finding it's harder for a lot of young people, too. Because, again, our minds have been so stimulated throughout the years that it's hard to be quiet. Um, so, so there's the hour. Um, I thought I'd also have this little antidote. Why 40 hours? Again, it's scriptural. 40 days in the desert. 40 years in the desert for the people of Israel. 40 days in the desert for Jesus. 
Also, traditionally, 40 hours was said to be the time between the moment Jesus was laid in the tomb before his resurrection. So that time frame is said to be 40 hours. So there's your little trivia there, too. So if you want to ask you, why 40? There's, there's your answer. So, finally, the meat and potatoes of it. What do you do during Eucharistic adoration? What makes a good devotion time of adoration? This is not an exhaustive list. There are many things. But these are the things that I have found most rewarding. The first thing to pass time is to pray the rosary or the Divine Mercy Chaplet. Depending how long you go, a rosary could take up a little bit of time. Um, just kind of help and move things along. One thing that I have found very rewarding is to bring a prayer list. Because again, you are in an intimate moment with Jesus. You're close to Him on this earth than you could possibly get unless we're in heaven. So what a great time to pray for others. For those who don't come. For those who have separated themselves from Him. Or for those who need Him most. Those who are suffering in hospitals or nursing homes without Him. Those who are lonely. Those who are out on the streets. To bring those people to Jesus. It's a great way to spend time with Him. I found it to be one of the best times for me, or one of the best uses of my time in adoration, is to pray for others. You can do spiritual reading, bring a book of the life of the saints. Um, I know many guys will do that. Fun little joke for you too. I was told when I first entered seminary, Readings for classes are not spiritual reading, and thus cannot be done during the hour. Some don't keep to that rule, but that's okay. If reading homiletic methods is, is prayerful, well then, so be it. Um, another very moving one is Lexio Divina, praying with the scriptures. Again, you have the one before you who spoke the words that are in the gospel. What better use of the time than to look over those words that he said? Say, you know, Jesus, you say this. Okay, well, I want to pray about it because I don't understand it. Again, it's a way for us to be open. The final suggestion, and this one's the hardest, is to just sit there. You just sit there and be silent. It's the hardest because it's, cha I mean, it's challenging. I guess I just said the same thing. It's the hardest because it takes practice. It's what's often called mental prayer. It's something that we have to work on. Because again, we're busy people. We have lives. We have, we have priorities that exist outside those doors. And we come here with Jesus to get away from them, or, or another way to look at it, to be with him so we can take him with us when we go back out. But the thing is, they're going to follow us, and they're going to keep pushing us. It happens to me too. And the hardest thing to do is to let those go. But another way to do it was rather than ignoring them, saying, Jesus, 
Here's this problem I'm having. Help me. In a sense, when we sit silently with Jesus, we do what Samuel did, young Samuel did in the temple, when the Lord was calling him. He said, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So, and that actually is what is the thing we should strive the most in any Eucharistic devotion that we may have, is can we sit there with Jesus? And just sit there. He looks at us, and we look at him. Sometimes that's all I'll say. I'm looking at you, Lord, and you are looking at me. Have mercy on me. So the best advice I can give, especially as we all begin this 40 hours, is to just be open to Jesus, but also be open to the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit guides our time with Jesus. Again, the Holy Spirit is our advocate. We were given those gifts at our confirmation that help us to enter into those times with Jesus, those times of intimacy that we need here on earth to sustain us as we go out to carry out His will. So, you know, a very simple prayer you can say before you begin your hour, Come Holy Spirit and fill my heart with your love and enkindle in me the fire of your Spirit. got that confused, but anyway, the come Holy Spirit prayer. Really, any time spent with Jesus is good time. It's not wasted. If we can only give him a few minutes, or I saw someone who's doing 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. tonight, you know, good on him. That's, that is a huge commitment. Any time spent with Jesus is time worth spent. There's a great, uh, one of the former rectors at St. Mitre, he used to tell the monks and the seminarians, he's now since returned to God, that until you realize prayer is the best use of your time, it won't be. That motto has stuck with me as I prepare for my upcoming ordination and preparing for the life of service that God has planned for me. Because that will be what sustains me. Um, and I also just asked this personal favor I didn't include it in my notes here. When you are before the Lord in prayer, please pray for your priests too. Please pray for our priests. You know, I had mentioned I had lost relatives in my time in seminary a lot more than I did before. Also, in my time, there have been six priests who have left ministry just in the archdiocese alone. We have to pray for them. And that is one of the best uses of our time, especially before the Blessed Sacrament, is to pray for priests. There's a beautiful prayer by St. Therese of Lisieux that is the prayer for priests, and I highly recommend you try to find it. It's a great prayer because it prays for different priests in different times in different states. Praying for the newly ordained, praying for the sick, praying for the one who's discouraged, praying for the one who's troubled. Again, she, she's very good at covering her bases because Therese loved her priests. Um, again, it's good time spent with Jesus. It's a devotional time that is worth our time. So, I will leave it there. And just know that the, know 
that Eucharistic devotion who sits before you is Jesus. Jesus who loves, who heals, and who saves. Thank you. Now, quite a bit of time before everything needs to begin. I, I'll